cross-court winner from Fanini. That's the rally of the match so far. Sinner, oh my goodness me. That is the roar from Lorenzo Sonego. Massetti stretches for the backhand volley <laughs> and makes it an astonishing point. Drop shot from Berrettini, it's too good! It's a winner from the Italian stunning play from Matteo Berrettini. Ciao. Sono Diego Nargiso, and you're listening to an Italian special on ATP Tennis Radio. Hello, my name is Kimi Parasole. Uh, I live in Turin. My favorite player is Novak Djokovic because he's always uh, perfect uh, on every ball. And uh, he has a great game, and that's it. My name is Mario Alarcon, and my favorite tennis player is Casper Ruud because he's got uh, an incredible backhand and uh, great movement on the court. So, I'm Camilla. I'm from Treviso, which is close Venice, and my favorite player is Zverev for his service. My name is Carlos Perez Barbadillo. I'm Spanish and Italian, but I live in Monaco. My favorite uh, tennis player is Nadal, because I'm Spanish. I love how he plays. He's perfect. I think he's the best in the world. Hello, I'm from Rome. I come from Rome. My favorite player tennis is uh, Berrettini, because I'm Italian and I come from Rome and Berrettini too. (laughs) Ciao e benvenuti. Hello and welcome to another ATP podcast. I'm Seb Lozier and this week we look under the bonnet of one of the world's most prolific tennising and sporting countries. Italy now hosts the season-ending Nito ATP finals in Turin and the next-gen ATP finals in Milan. And the country's players are clearly inspired, making up eight of the world's top 100 men as things stand and two of the top 10. World number seven, Matteo Berrettini and world number 10, Yannick Sinner, both present this year in Turin. One of the men behind Berrettini's surge up the rankings is Umberto Rihanna, who also looks after the over-18s for the Italian Tennis Federation. He sat down at the recent Next Gen Finals in Milan with Barry Cowan. 22 years I was a private, you know, I worked with some players and I was a coach myself and uh, uh, finally 2014 the federation, had, uh, you know, the federation, the national board had uh, a nice intuition. They finally realized that uh, we needed to invest on kids even after the 18, after the junior career, actually even more. So they asked me to be in charge of the program and uh, since then I had a few goals like uh, right in mind and the first one was to try to build alliance with private teams. I mean, I understood since day one that the, that the alliance and the synergy with the, uh, between the, the national resource and, and the private teams is, w- was the key of everything. So since then, you know, I start to have a relation. I basically have a relation with the coach and I coach through the coach. So what I do is uh, I help him to build the team and the relation between all the components of the team. And mostly, I focus a lot on communication, which I believe is the key. So I see how the you know the coach communicates with the player and uh, with the rest of the team, the way he directs the team, and uh, I try to give some inputs and some suggestions, you know, some tips here and there. So how does it work? Let, let's take a player who's he's he's playing in the last year of juniors. He's a very good junior. What happens then in terms of what the Italian Federation do? Do they pay? for the player and the coach? Do they rely on sponsorship? Do they rely on the parents? How do they then go through that transitional period, which is very important between 18 and 21, 22? Right, I agree with you. The Federation has been supporting in many ways. 
So it's yes, also they support them financially, you know, but also the, the federation is. And let's not forget that we have, uh, I think, probably about 20 challengers, and and I don't know how many future before, you know, the the pandemic situation. So that has been a lot and then finally the federation also supports with the figures like me you know that they can be helpful for the team so the support is in many ways but the federation is really working together with the private teams was it a conscious effort from the italian federation to have as many tournaments as they do in terms of futures and challenges was that something that that you set out from day one absolutely i mentioned it because i think it's one of the key I mean, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, kids sometimes get too comfortable to play just in Italy. You know, but we also know that it's an unbelievable opportunity to have so many tournaments in many ways, especially after they finish their their junior career, because in the most crucial phase of their you know of their development, they have a, they have the opportunity to have their own team and to be in an environment in some ways that protects them. Just we have to find the right balance and not to get them too comfortable. And this is what's been happening. So uh, I believe uh, for the federation to host like so many tournaments was uh, was a, 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 a very conscious decision. And uh, it's one of the key for the success that we, we have been having. The game loses a lot of great juniors. So not just in a UK or America or Italy in the past. So, so how do you how do you get that important transition period? Is, is, it, is it focused mainly on the process? Is there any emphasis on results? How, 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 do, you, how do you bridge that gap? Right. I think even here we, we, we're trying to find the right balance. We're still working on it because, of course, you know, the Federation has to select some kids. We, we, can't, we can't help like, uh, I don't know, 2,000 kids. And uh, it's mainly starts from the results that they've been having, but after that, you know, it goes deeper than that. And then we want them to have a different mentality. It's uh, they know that when the federation steps in to support them, it's for an investment, a long-term process. It's not based on just the result that they get quickly. So many great players now at the top. You're blessed. What is the focus? Is it we want? A champion of Rome? Is it we want a Grand Slam champion or is it just purely numbers in the top 100? I don't know if you're aware but you actually have over 150 players ranked on the ATP Tour so so what is your philosophy? No we are aware that gives us like a, an unbelievable motivation as you mentioned I mean having so many players ranked it, it, it gives us also the, the conscious that, that we work in fact I mean there's something a lot of good things are happening but also, we are aware that we cannot waste all we have created. So we need to keep investing and to find the different resources, having like a, a more, more coaches like involved and so on. So and also ask around, you know, see how the, the other federation work and, and try to get together with them and share, you know, experience and knowledge. This is the only way we believe we're going to keep growing. Coaches are so important. In, in, in any profession, in any sport, are the coaches, are they ex-players or are they coaches who've learned through the years of coached very good five, six? Because it's a specialised, totally different specialised job, isn't it? Working with a, with a five-year-old as opposed to working with a 25-year-old. And again, the mix of what you said is, is, is a, perfect, a perfect situation. 
I believe also it's not important if they were a former player, if they just come from a different background. The only thing that is very important is to be aware that we need to invest. And the investment is also on the coach and as, as, as he grows, and the way he develops. Because if we're asking the kids to get better, even the coach needs to ask himself to get better and to, do, and to be willing to do whatever it takes to get better. So it's, uh, you know, we need to invest as a federation, we need to invest so young kids, you know, even former players, sometimes they were not as lucky to make it to the real top to be part of the old movement and to, and to want to become a coach. Are all your coaches Italian? Yes, at the moment. But we have, a, we have, a, we have Craig Oshansi that, that gives us a tremendous help. We have Lorenzo Beltrame and on, the, on the mental side. I mean, we, we are also open to, to I mean, foreign. And it's, you know, actually, we're looking forward to partnership with the foreign coaches. And if you stick with us, both Craig O'Shaughnessy and Lorenzo Beltrame are still to come. But first, Barry's also been speaking with a former player who's been combining broadcast work with the running of his own academy. That is former Italian Davis Cup player Diego Nargizo. Well, it has been very fun. First of all, as uh, first of all, I started off with uh, big with players. Uh, I was coaching uh, and managing Volandri and Panetta, and then Filip Krajinovic with uh, Novak Djokovic as uh, our uh, mentor. Uh, and then I decided to go into juniors because I I really like to like build up the player and start off with them. I've done that with uh, Gianluca Mager that is now top hundred. I've done it with uh, Lorenzo Giustino. Uh, I'm doing it now this with uh, Federico Arnabode, which was uh, winner of Avenire under 16. Uh, so I like that a lot to start uh, uh, the player and to start the relation with the player when he's very young, uh, in order to uh, build up his um, former future career together with him. And uh, hopefully, I make uh, I give my best, and uh, I love it. How much different is it working with a junior as opposed to working with? A senior that that they are that kind of you're, you're just trying to polish the, the diamond. Where at the start you're trying to build the base. How much different is it? Well, it's a big difference. You know, you have to build up his uh, uh, his mental. You have to build up his uh, his way of being on court, and uh, you are working on the uh, really on on his game. Uh, while when you are a professional player you only uh, really have to uh, the details really make the difference uh, with the junior it starts all from the beginning uh, you have to give him mentality um, humbleness it's very important to be humble uh, it's very important to have a, a goal and uh, the program is very important so to schedule uh, to teach him that uh, how much he's got to play the rest uh, the way he, he eats the way he thinks I mean it's something really different that uh, uh, more interesting I think uh, if you want to uh, to go into the process into the old process uh, as we were no players so it's it's fun it's more I, I, I think it's it's funnier what would be sort of a typical week of a 14 year old so they're still at school I presume they play on clay so if they do play on clay, what would be a sort of a normal, typical week? How many hours tennis would a 14-year-old play who's still at school? How many hours physical training and, and how many hours on the mental side would they put in in a week? 
First of all, I have uh, in my own in my academy we have uh, hard courts and uh, green set and. Um, uh, clay court so I always uh, kind of uh, switch and swap all the time in order for them to don't have to be too much into one court and one type of, of play um, they play normally around one and a half play one and a half hour a day uh, tennis and then they have uh, of course uh, physical uh, uh, it's about one hour one hour and 15 minutes no more than two and a half to three hours because they're young uh, I don't believe that so young they have to play too much but uh, it's very important to uh, to put in uh, a lot of um, uh, condition because they have to feel good and feel strong uh, we have also mental tennis that is uh, that is together with us working and uh, this, the mental part is about two times a week and we have um, also which which I think is very important once a week we have somebody that comes and and um, build up his posture and this way of uh, is a chiropractor and he comes once a week in order to uh, follow up uh, his, uh, his way of, um, of being uh, um, uh, well on the, on, on the court and to don't have any problems with his back and, uh, and to be really um, balanced. This is, the, I think, the right word. Yannick Sin has made incredible improvement, incredible strides and you look at the way he moves on the court, similar to Djokovic, both both skied at a very young age. Is everyone is everyone skiing now in Italy? All the juniors are they getting on the slopes? I think he's done. He's done something very important that a lot of young youngsters now they look at him as a, as an example. And in my academy, there is one guy that is one one little guy. He's only like twelve and a half, almost thirteen. He very much looks like him. I mean, we have young players they're very like uh, light and very uh, tall uh, with these long legs and uh, and uh, I think they, they try to imitate him a little bit um, I think it's 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 the right thing to do because he's a player that uh, uh, is talented incredibly talented but uh, also he has is very humble and uh, he thinks that to, to work on his game every day is the most important thing to do. So every time he speaks, we try to to teach our to to, to show our players that uh, that's the way you have to think because uh, working day by day will uh, will make a player not uh, only thinking that it's coming from somewhere. You know, it's coming only from the day by day work and from the uh, the mentality to become a player and to uh, that you have to want it really bad. And uh, I think uh, Yannick is uh, the perfect example for our for our kids and uh, for the Italian future in terms of what's coming next we've got Berrettini we've got Sinner we've got Mazzetti are there any any youngsters uh, maybe two or three years younger than Sinner and Mazzetti that, that we'll be seeing in two or three years time in the top hundred I think so. The, there are a few other guys coming in. Uh, 2003, Luca Nardi is very, very good. Uh, uh, 2004, uh, 2005, we have a couple of them that are really interesting players. Uh, all very. What, what I found, what I find different from from the past, is that all these guys are very, very um, uh, well educated. Uh, they know the way. Uh, they they're not so much up and downs like we were before. And um, 
I think the, the, the path of Berrettini and then Yannick um, is very well uh, threatened. So we have only to follow that path. And uh, uh, also the coaches have to be very humble and, and follow a path that is working. So myself also, uh, we, I decided to, uh, to speak a lot with Ricardo and with all the others uh, in order to, to learn how to, to make young players become uh, professional. And so I think that's, uh, that's the right way. What three bits of advice would you give a junior? If they, they come to your academy and they say, Diego, I want to be the next Yannick Sin. I want to be the next Matteo Berrettini. What three bits of advice would you give them? The first one is to don't, uh, you don't have to uh, look at the others. I mean, it's your way. It's your way, it's your time. I don't know if it's going to be uh, in two years, three years, five years, doesn't matter. Each one has his own um, uh, time of uh, development that is not the same. So uh, no uh, comparison. This is the wrongest thing you can do. It's like I would, if I think I'm 18 and what, what is my ranking compared to another player, I think this is the, the wrong part. I mean, I have to believe in what I'm doing. So I, I would say um, uh, keep my... The, eyes on, on what I'm doing. Uh, second of all, I think is to to be completely um, sure or on, on the coach and, and give him total trust because uh, at least I need three years to work on a player to, un- to understand and to see the, the results. So I don't have to, uh, to be too, um, uh, going too much for the results in the beginning because we have to work on it. So, um, and the third one that I should say is, is to, uh, to be humble because humbleness, I think, is the most important thing. Uh, but without forgetting that you, you want to be strong and you want to believe in yourself. So humble, but not, uh, not believing. So you have to believe you're strong, but you have to be humble. Um, the word that I, that I for sure use to everyone is to be uh, very um, balanced on, 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 on your thinking. Never too much, never too low. I mean, it's, I think balance is very important in, in, in to be a, sports, uh, a sportsman and a good, uh, good player. Another important component is mindset. And for that, the Italian Tennis Federation have turned to another very well-travelled former player, Lorenzo Beltrami. I am Italian, but I moved to the United States. I live in Florida for the last 28 years. And um, I was lucky enough to have worked with Dr. Jim Lur for 20 years. Uh, so he has been, uh, while I was coaching players, I work with him very closely to understand more and more about uh, the performance side on the mental and uh, on the mental aspect and emotional aspect and motivational aspect and so basically he uh, was the one that kind of at this at the end chose me to run the performance coaches of the human performance institute many years ago and kind of that's where i started become specialized into that space and what sort of ages do you work with yeah, I work with young players too, young athletes, uh, some as young as 14 years old, but is, I prefer to start a little later. So around, uh, you know, college years is probably the best for me too, or like high school or college will be the best and all the way to, you know, uh, whenever they finish competing. So, I mean, I guess the key, um, I, I used to play and also I work with uh, psycho- sports psychologists, I guess the key is to understand the athlete first. So how would you go about that? I think, I think actually the real key for me is to uh, help the 
play person first and making person understand why they compete and what are the true benefit of competitive sports. So, uh, regardless if you are playing amateurly or you're playing professionally, I think uh, competitive sport is very challenging, and I think these challenges are key to uh, test you and stimulate you to grow as a person. So, if you see this career as a vehicle to become a more functional, stronger person, uh, human being, then the athlete comes along. So, I think totally person first, athlete second. Generally, when you when you look at tennis players, especially what we'll get onto other sports, because I know you've worked with with other sports people, but tennis players, we're all different. So how how do you go about working with the the maybe the the one who is very quiet, introverted, as opposed to the one who's highly strung? Yeah, I think that I always start with um, a, a pretty structured program uh, that I divide into sections, and so I I, I have several discussions with the athletes, the players, and uh, we go dif- to different places. And typically, what happens that each player or each team around the player takes you in a different direction. So it is at a certain point is the player that takes the control. Of the yeah, I was going to ask that. Is it the player that approaches you first, or or is it you approaching the player? Um, as far as working together, yeah. uh, no. Typically, the, no. I don't approach anyone. So it's always either an agent or a coach or player himself or, or the parents if they are younger calling me. So yeah. And other sports that you've worked with is not just tennis. So so which other sports are, have you worked in, and what are the different challenges with other sports? Because you've got a, tennis, an individual sport, yeah. as opposed to maybe football, soccer, some of the other sports that are very, are team-based. Yeah, so I, I, I also work with mus- uh, musicians as well uh, and some business people too. But uh, I think is that every sport uh, is a game typically and every sport game is designed to test the individual in different ways so for example tennis is a sport where you have a short burst of action and relatively long periods of time where you reset and you have to reprogram uh, the, the way you're playing um, golf has longer longer pauses and even shorter actions so the longer the pauses the more challenging uh, for the emotional part of the game is so what would you recommend? You know, because a lot of our listeners will be are tennis fans, but they're also tennis players and they, they might be local club players. And, and, the, and the hardest thing is how do you concentrate? How do you stay in the moment when you're, when you're hoping that you're going to win a match, you get distracted? So sort of a, little, a few tips that you have? Yeah, yeah. You know, the most, the most one that comes to mind is what uh, we do. We work a lot on what happens in between points. Uh, so we divide in between points in uh, five different phases um, where the players in the first two has to reset from the previous point using uh, prim- primarily body language and inner voice uh, and then some sort of, um, um, if you want, breathing technique or relaxation techniques. And then they have to reactivate to be energized again to play in the following point and then uh, uh, create a clear plan in their minds on what they want to do, especially at the beginning of the points and what kind of philosophy or point they want to use if they want to try to bring the point to the length or try to finish the point relatively short. And then there is a period of a visualization and uh, some sort of a, a ritualistic uh, a way to go about so that you uh, further your concentration in playing the next point. So this, this is something that is relatively technical. Actually, I call it technical and has to have the same attention than what happened during points because uh, the, the timing between points is not 
a pause, it's still performance. Yeah. And so the, the ability to reset physically and mentally after maybe a tough point or a big mistake is needs to be developed. And the ability to formulate a plan and visualize the plan before the point starts has to has to be developed. So going to ask you because obviously at the moment what's very current in the news is mental health yes. and as a sports psychologist I guess the first thing you've all well, as a coach as well it's the welfare of that player so so have you had to sort of change the way you approach things in in the last couple of years or, or is that what you've always done anyway yeah no I always I always done that you know to me as I said before you know the person comes first and uh, and I believe when the person is really feels that this activity that is extremely challenging and somehow is a little crazy if you want, you know, uh, is has benefits beyond winning or making money or become famous. Then, uh, then the person all of a sudden takes a burden off themselves and they can appreciate uh, more this activity and appreciate even the tough days uh, because obviously when you are able to see how a, a, a difficult day is actually trampoline for. Uh, a better you, uh, then really there's never a bad day out there. So to me, the well-being of the athletes has always been uh, primary in my, my attention. Interesting that I asked all eight players before the tournament of uh, their three career goals, and seven of them had numbers. So it was Grand Slam champion, world number one. There was one player, interestingly, that said, I just want to be a better player tomorrow. So it's so different kind of, I mean, there isn't one no one way is the right way but it's, it's, it's sort of interesting how players have different views on their long-term goals what, what, what's your thoughts on that um, I, I actually prefer to um, ask a different question than uh, goals in terms of numbers or so it is what kind of experience would you like to leave within your experience within your career so I want them to uh, describe scenes that they want to be part of and so if someone says well I want to be playing on a big stadium with a lot of fans excited about uh, what they see and they all kind of cheer up they obviously know that maybe we're playing a final of the slam but instead of saying I want to play a final of the slam I prefer them to describe a, a, a situation that they want to be part of yeah. yeah so and obviously everybody has a little different but I try to push them in that direction Lorenzo, you have your own company. So, so what is that company, and, and what other sports? You mentioned that you've been in music, but what other sports have you are you heavily involved in? Yeah, so um, as I said, uh, I, I work with some colleges, Harvard University, a big client of mine, and uh, so um, let's see if I can mention a few. But uh, you know, soccer, baseball, uh, softball, uh, rugby, uh, shooting, uh, archery, uh, golf, uh, cricket, uh, car racing. Uh, water polo I love golf but I'm not good when I've got a good card in my hand please give me some advice you have not a good golfer. <laughs> um, so I, I think golf and tennis are very similar from that uh, point of view. Um, the big difference between golf and tennis I have to say is that golfing is very very it's a lot less forgiving yeah, I was going to say, when I, when I first started to play a lot of golf, I could not concentrate for longer than 13 or 14 holes. I could play tennis for three hours yeah. and focus because it is a totally different skill in terms of your focus. Yeah. Well, the pauses are a lot longer. So, you know, between a driver and, uh, 
and, uh, and an iron could be like three or four minutes. So the, the pause allows you to ruminate a lot more on a bad shot. Uh, also, every shot you hit, you're on the verge of disaster. You know, you hit a bad shot on Thursday, it counts on Sunday. Uh, in tennis, you hit a bad shot in the first game, uh, you can still win the first game, but it doesn't count in the second game. So uh, I think golf is um, quite, quite, in my opinion, is more nerve-wracking than uh, than tennis, you know. And so it requires level of concentration that for a long period of time, all the times. And so it's a little less physical, but um, but it's very challenging on your emotion and on your concentration. So, uh, But it, basically, I would manage the same way you manage the in-between in tennis, you know, it's, it's the same kind of ideas, but diluted over time. One of the hardest things in sport, Olympics, because that's once every four years. In tennis, you play 30, to- 30 tournaments a year. If you have a couple of bad tournaments, there's always next week. Have you worked with Olympic athletes? And, and if you have, what, what are their mindsets with, with everything being on maybe 10 seconds or 20 seconds every four years? Yeah, I, I did work with Oli- Olympics athletes. Um, in tennis, of course, which is a completely different kind of uh, experience. Um, an athlete that I haven't actually worked directly, but has been training at the Institute with Dr. Lur and for many years, uh, obviously for them, every race becomes uh, a lot more, uh, this is it, you know. And so there is a longer preparation, there is a, uh, a lot of excitement for that particular race, and then there is a lot more time in, in between. So it, it is it's definitely a a space where the athlete prepare for much longer, mm-hmm. uh, perform for much less, and then he moves, along, moves along. Uh, and so sometimes they prepare and they don't qualify for the Olympics. So uh, th- there is a lot, a lot there. Um, I would say that in the space is, is there is a lot more emotions uh, because you don't have that. Uh, tomorrow is a news tournament that starts. So it's, it's a lot of preparation. It can be quite devastating when they don't do well. A couple more questions. Uh, firstly, back. Mr. Lur, Jim Lur, Dr. Jim Lur, because am I right in thinking he was the first person who's involved in tennis in terms of the mental side? Is that right? And, and how, if it, if it was, how much has it advanced now from when he first started? Yeah, you know, basically his career started as a uh, clinical psychologist and then he decided I wanted to see instead of getting someone that he was not doing so well to become, let's say, adequate or nor- let's say normal, but I say quote in quotation, to get someone from good to great. So he, he occupied a space that nobody occupied there before and because he loved tennis so much, kind of that was his breeding ground. So he spent quite a bit of time back in the days uh, at the academy in Bradenton, uh, you know, working with younger athletes at, and uh, so, so was he? He was with Agassi and Courier and Chang, Sampras. Yeah, he worked direct with Jim Curry. He worked direct. I guess he was one of the kids at the Bolletieri Academy. Pete was definitely part of the group. Chang, I'm not 100 percent sure if he was. So he, he worked a lot with these these guys when they were very young, and uh, you know, used them to collect data and to understand more about the performance. And eventually, he used all his knowledge plus that experience to uh, to create programs, to create some sort of a theories on what to do to become great performance. And he was probably one of the first ones to talk about multi-dimensions of uh, the, the performance. So uh, he's, he, although he's a psychologist, he always talked about uh, the physical dimensions uh, as, as a big part of the uh, emotional management and so on. Uh, so in that space, I think, in my opinion, was the first one that really made like, a big difference and still 
considered probably one of the, one of the best that I ever worked in that space. Yeah, absolutely. Tennis continues to evolve. Physical side continues to evolve. I'm sure it's the same for the the mental side needs to continue to evolve. So, so with your your crystal ball, where do you where do you see the mental side of tennis and sport being in 10 or 15 years time? Yeah, I think that when, when I was playing, you know, basically uh, we were ba- barely doing fitness. We were just playing tennis, and then fitness became like absurd not to do it right nutrition became part of it and on the mental side there was a little bit of stigma you know i i don't need because if i need to work with a psychologist or a mental coach it means that there's something wrong with my head and that was not seen as uh, very cool uh, now for many reasons it's become more and more in the open but you know not necessarily you have to have a problem to work with a mental coach or a psychologist you just work with them to improve what you have so um, I would say that most players right now they have at least a consultant in their team that follows this this space and I think that's going to become more and more uh, embraced by everyone so I, the teams now are getting pretty large uh, there are five six seven professionals for every player uh, supporting the player and I think that the, the, the coach and the psychologists are uh, now pretty much uh, staples into the teams of top players coaching and psychology key for any player's development so too increasingly data And by that, I mean the analysis and number crunching that goes on behind the scenes, all used to give a player even the slightest edge against an opponent. For this, the Italian Federation have gone to one of the world's leading voices, tour coach and director of Brain Game Tennis, Craig O'Shaughnessy. Michelangelo Deladera, that's where the conversation starts. Um, He is the powerhouse and the brains behind this renaissance. He is the the high performance director for Italian tennis. So, um, you know, when I first came over here about six years ago, you know, the Renaissance hadn't started yet, but he, he bought out these manuals of, this is what we're doing in orange ball and red ball and, un, you know, the under eight and under 10 and under 12, and the organization of, of, the, uh, of the levels of Italian tennis blew me away. Um, then when I came over and started speaking at the conferences, all of a sudden you've got you know, thousands of the Italian coaches, they're all here as one big happy family. Um, they're all bought in, they're all drinking the Kool-Aid on, on this is the way that we want things to go forward. And, you know, the, the funny thing with, with Italy, and you know, it even happened this morning, you know, when, when you have a time, so we're gonna be here at this time, time's a suggestion in Italy. It's like, you know, I remember doing some presentations d- down in Naples and, you know, I, I, I'm ready to go at 9 a.m. Well, you know, we don't arrive till 9.30. Um, the, the building's still locked at 9.45. You know, we started, well, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to rush to get this thing started around 10. It's like, no, Craig, let's, you know, let's go have an espresso and we'll start at 10.30. So there's an element of, of the Italian culture that's very loose, not Italian tennis in the least. Um, they are locked in on the analytics. They are locked in on the patterns of play. So how hard was that to shift what is essentially the way the Italians run their life to being a little bit more right we've got to be on time right we've got to be structured yeah well you know I I was expecting that I was expecting the Italian culture to kind of spill over to Italian tennis and it's like you know we're a clay court country we have a clay court mentality you know we don't mind standing back and rallying none of that happened from day one when I arrived when I 
you know, got up there to speak. Michelangelo introduced me, and he, and he talks about you know the revolutions that. Have what What's his background? He's always been in tennis. I think it's you know the organisation of the sport, and it's the organisation of coach education. So he very much puts together the curriculum of what the coaches need to learn. And I think when we go back maybe a decade, what he did is he made a decision to say, okay. We want to be the best. This is way before Italian tennis even started climbing. And the decision was made, we're going to look around the world and find the best person that we feel can coach the movement of our sport, the best person that can coach um, putting together the academies, the best person for the technique, the best person for the strategy. So they assembled a team from all over the world and kind of got the best in each field. And, and that's really where it started. It started with that mentality. And once again, Michelangelo put all that together. In terms of the, the coaches, you mentioned they're a very tight-knit group. Uh, so so how, how can you get all the coaches to buy into the same? Because generally, it, well, it is an individual sport, yes. and sometimes it is very hard to get everyone on board. Well, I'm down in Bari, which is in the heel of Italy, and Michelangelo gets up to introduce me to um, a room full, maybe 100 coaches in the room. And I'm picking up you know, little bits of Italian that he's talking about, and the first thing he says, you know, there's five revolutions in tennis. So the first revolution that happened was Bjorn Borg. You know, adding the spin was a big deal, something we hadn't seen before. Being the Iceman was a big deal. The second revolution was Yvonne Wendell. Um, you know, he, he wasn't the best in our sport, but he worked the hardest. He showed that with hard work, you can absolutely get there. The third revolution was Nick Boletari. Nobody had put academies together in the world, and Nick was the first one to do it, and we've all kind of copied that since. And the fourth revolution was the um, the 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 rackets and the balls you know the improvement you know we went from wood and then all of a sudden now we're at carbon fire or it's space age materials so that 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 changed everything and then he goes and the fifth revolution in our sport is standing to my left which is me standing to the left so i've got a hundred coaches that were looking right at him that are now looking at me and he turns and points at me and says this guy here is going to help us make the big leap craig is the best in the world at the analytics of our sport, it's studying that. And he is gonna bring that to Italian tennis. He goes, we are all in with this guy. Whatever he says to, for us to do, if he says more run around forehands, we're doing it. If he says we need to get to the net, we're doing it. So when you have the leader say, we're all in with this guy, that creates buy-in instantly. And I have not felt in six years one coach, not one coach in the country, that's kind of said, well, you know, we're Italian tennis, we can stay back, we can do these things. All of them are thirsty for knowledge, thirsty to understand what matters most to winning and losing from matches, uh, from, from match data. And, um, you know, I'll do talks here in, in Torino during the, um, during the ATP finals, and they will be consuming the new data and going straight back out to the elite juniors and, um, and, and putting that information in. So, you know, they are 100% um, leading the world and absorbing the latest analytics of our sport and delivering it to their kids. With heroes at the top of the game and the blueprint seemingly set for the next gen to follow in the footsteps of players like 19-year-old Lorenzo Musetti and 20-year-old Yannick Zinner, the future of tennis is certainly looking very bright in Italy. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for more exclusive interviews and features from the official podcast of the ATP Tour.